morning in Matthew chapter 26 in our continuing journey with Jesus Christ in his passion leading to the cross, to the tomb, and to the sky. We are coming upon his betrayal and his arrest, the historical record of Jesus' arrest in verse 47 through 56. I'm going to read this passage. I'd like to ask Mark Freitag if you pray for the ministry of the word this morning. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would not let familiarity breathe in heaven. That this passage may be very well known to us, but Father, we ask for fresh insight, we ask for light, that you would unfold your word before us by giving your servants energy and strength from the Holy Spirit. We might be see the scriptures, that we might truly have them revealed to us, that we might worship you, that we might adore you even more. And Father, that we might understand these things from that which was written from long ago and revealed from many centuries before, that the scriptures might be fulfilled here in this place, in, in this way, in, for Jesus and for the redemption of his people. We ask that you would give your servant strength Give him memory to call the things he studied, and that energy and unction which only you can supply. And open our ears, open our hearts to receive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is much in this passage that could be brought out and discussed. The, the history, the narrative of it is relatively familiar. It's very straightforward. We have already seen Satan entering the heart of Judas to betray his, his master, his rabbi. I think it's interesting, in verse 50, he calls him friend. And we talked about this in a previous message, that while we tend to think of Judas as being a shadowy figure that was always in the background, always conniving, the prophecies actually speak of the betrayer of Jesus as his close friend, as one with whom he had supped, has, had dined. And it appears that perhaps 
Judas was, was perhaps closer to Jesus as one of the disciples than, than we tend to think. But this morning I want to focus on something that Jesus says twice in this passage. He speaks of the scriptures being fulfilled. And that is a topic and a concept that has driven people within professing Christianity in opposite directions for millennia. The scriptures might be fulfilled. There's no shortages of predictions these days of the end times. But that really hasn't changed. And if we look over the history of the Christian church as well as that of Judaism, trying to interpret the prophecies of scripture has been a favorite pastime throughout the ages. I, I want to mention some. There, there are multitudes of end dates and end days predicted throughout the last 2,000 years. Obviously, I think, none of them have been correct. But some of them, I think, will surprise you. Some of the men who participated in this date setting. In the late 4th century, Martin of Tours, a famous theologian, claimed beyond a doubt that the Antichrist had been born and that the end of the age would occur before A.D. 400. Obviously, he had not met Mikhail Gorbachev, whom we all know, at least it's been announced to us back in the 80s, that he was the Antichrist. It didn't turn out to be that way, of course. In A.D. 992, the Feast of the Annunciation occurred on the same day as Good Friday. And therefore, it was interpreted even by the Pope that this was the sign of the coming of the Antichrist, I can't quite figure that one out, and the end of the age. Regardless of the fact that both of these holy days were man-made, neither one of them found in the Scripture, men of the church considered their coincidence to be a sign of the end. Do you remember A.D. 2000? Those of you old enough to remember Y2K? Well, folks, there was a Y1K, too. Pope Sylvester II announced that the coming of the turn of the millennium in A.D. 1000 would mark the end of the age. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Pope Innocent III, who was probably the most influential pope in Roman Catholic history and perhaps one of the most influential men in Christian history, announced that the end would come 666 years after the rise of Islam. I don't think it's happened, but that would be a very popular prophecy today, wouldn't it? Somehow linking the end times with Islam? Actually, I think I've gotten that email. Okay? I think so. Christopher Columbus got in on the act. Who'd have thought? Christopher Columbus gave it a couple of shots. And these were all after his death, so it wasn't that it, he predicted it, it didn't come to pass, but, and then he changed his mind. But he reasoned that on his calculation, the world was created in 5,343 B.C., and that it would last 7,000 years. Well, he changed his numbers a little bit, and so his date for the end of the world was either 1656 or 1658, both of which has passed. Servetus. Some of you have heard of Michael Servetus, someone who kind of got John Calvin into historical trouble. Um, but Servetus was considered a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church as well as the Reformed Church, and like he would, 
He considered the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 to be the advent of the Antichrist. And the time of Satan would begin with the Council of Nicaea and would last 1260 years, which we read about in Revelation. And therefore, the world would end in 1585. And then, of course, there is Y2K. And I can remember the apocalyptic prophecies that were made in the church, the emails that were going around, the pronouncements of doom and gloom. The leaders of Jerry Falwell, Tim LaHaye, were all predicting that this would be the end of the age, that the world economy would collapse, which would set the stage for the rise of the Antichrist and the coming of the beast and the mark, which would be the barcode, you know, all of that stuff. But you know that Y2K was first predicted to be the end of the age, not by Tim LaHaye, but by Isaac Newton back in the 17th century, followed by Jonathan Edwards, our most famous theologian philosopher here in the colonies, took up the cudgels and saying, yes, the world will end because he believed that marked 7,000 years of human existence. Well, it was a bit of a dud. I don't know if you remember that January or December 31st, but you know what? Everything kind of woke up the next day just like the previous. There's no lack. You've all heard of Harold Camping, the most recent famous or at least well-known predictor of the dates, October in 2011, which was actually changed from May 2011, which passed without the end coming. And then October passed without the end coming. And then the end of Harold Camp came without the end coming. For, to his credit, he did apologize. To his credit, he did publicly say, I was wrong and I don't know, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Is scripture clear enough for date setting? Or should I ask, is it vague enough for date setting? Are the prophecies of scripture so clear that they can be predicted beforehand? Or are they clear enough that they ought to be recognized afterwards? Jesus says that these things must happen, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus' view of scripture was a very high one. Elsewhere we read him saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, scriptures do not lie. But what would the Jews of his day have been looking for? those who were looking for the scriptures to be fulfilled, would they find it being fulfilled in Gethsemane? Would they consider the scenes of, that we have read to be the fulfillment of scripture, or would they be perplexed? Is the scripture clear enough that we can predict the dates and the times and the events? Back in the days of the second temple, the days of Jesus Christ, those examples that I've just read over of Christian history were replete among the Jews. There were rabbis and there were priests and there were scribes and there were Pharisees who believed that they had plumbed the depths of the prophecies of a particularly Daniel and they knew what was coming and when it was coming. And they even mentioned particular people. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one we would follow. And one of them who was truly wise, the one who was the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, the rabbi Gamaliel, 
stood up in their midst and caused them all to be quiet and Peter and John to be put out from the room and he said to the rest of the Sanhedrin, take care what you do. For remember Thutis, remember Judas the Galilean, these men who, who rose up and claimed to be someone and then they died and everything came to naught. And, Ga and Gamaliel said, if this is of man, it will fall out of itself. It will die off. But if it is of God, then you will find yourself fighting against God himself. This is the same advice that I think we should adhere to and give one another whenever we get those magazines, whenever we get those emails, whenever we're told what Brexit means or what this hurricane means or what this coming election, which is clearly apocalyptic. There's never been an election like this one. Take heed what you think. If it's of God, it's, it's going to come to pass. But what of his first coming? What of Jesus' first coming? Was it clear? Was it obvious? He announces here that these things must take place, that the scriptures be fulfilled. But which scriptures are, is he talking about? Have you ever wondered that? When you read the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament, do you not see the scriptures pointing in what appear to be opposite directions with regard to the coming one? Now, remember that. Because in our day, we are looking to the return of the coming one. That is our hope. That is our promise, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But do all of the scriptures point clearly in the same direction? His first advent was promised. It was coming. But what it would be like was not so clear. The scriptures do make clear that something is going to happen. But they rarely make it clear just how it's going to happen. How did Israel miss the Messiah? What were they looking for? And as I asked earlier, did they find it in Gethsemane? Well, for the majority of Israel, at least at this time, at the time of his betrayal, of the time of Jesus' arrest, the majority of Israel missed it. Now, later on in Acts, we will find that many of the Jews and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Many of them began to see how the scriptures were fulfilled and what happened to Jesus, but at this time it didn't make sense. And I would wager that it didn't make a whole lot of sense to the disciples either. Listen to some of the prophecies of his coming that they would have looked forward to. They were expecting the king of glory. Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O gates, that the king might enter in. Who is this king? The Lord, the King of glory, is his name. They were looking for the son of David. Isaiah chapter 11, that he would be filled with the sevenfold spirit of God. The root out of the stump of Jesse. They were looking for the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah chapter 40, the one who would lead his flock like a shepherd and gently tend those who were with young they were looking for the righteous servant. They were looking from Isaiah 42, 
the one who would establish justice and equity. This was a people oppressed by the Roman Empire, and they were looking for the Messiah to come and establish Israel, the throne of David, the righteousness of God, and justice and equity. They were looking, according to Isaiah 49, for the salvation of Israel and the light to the Gentiles. Did they find what they were looking for in Gethsemane? No, they didn't. And so, was it unreasonable, for example, for John the Baptist, who obviously by this time was dead, but earlier on sent his disciples to Jesus, asking Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? I've got all these scriptures here. I mean, isn't this what we do in our prophecy conferences? I've got all these scriptures lined up here, that clearly point that Russia is going to invade the Middle East, you know, and all of that stuff. Then it doesn't happen. And we go to other scriptures. We look for another. We're trying to figure it out. But what happens is that when we look to a certain section of scripture, a certain type of scripture, we fail to understand the fullness of what God is doing. There's no doubt that the promised king came, that the kingdom of righteousness and glory was set up, that he conquered sin and death, and that he is the shepherd of his people. But there was another set of scriptures that taught what he had to go through to get there. It wasn't a direct track it wasn't all of the people of Jerusalem laying their palms and their, and their garments out on the road as the king of David, the son of David, came into Jerusalem. And they all, we call it his triumphal entry. And they were all thinking this is the time that he would take upon himself the throne of David. He would overthrow the Romans and Israel would become great again. No, that's not what God was doing. No, he didn't make Israel great again. I saw that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Alongside those triumphant king prophecies, there are the suffering servant prophecies. And I think we can understand, especially among the Jews, the disciples, and those priests, and those Pharisees like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Barnabas, those men and women who would later be blessed with the grace of regeneration and would come into the fold, we can understand why those were not the prophecies they were excited about. We're not excited about our servant, our Messiah, suffering. But Psalm 22, the Messiah says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. That is clearly recognized even by the Jews as a messianic prophecy. Speaking of the suffering, Psalm 69, we find out that the Messiah would be consumed by godly zeal. We read in verses 4 and verse 9, Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. He was rejected by those who claimed to be the leaders 
of the true worship of God. Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. And that second phrase that is so intriguing, it is marvelous in our sight. That the way that the, that, that the leaders, the religious leaders of Judaism rejected the chief cornerstone is marvelous? No, what's marvelous is the stone which the builders rejected and cast out has become the chief cornerstone. That's what's marvelous. Not so much that they rejected it. Finally, in Psalm 41, as I alluded to earlier, he was betrayed by a trusted friend. He says, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We, we, again, we sometimes create in our minds impressions of the way things were that are totally wrong. As far as we can tell, from the prophecies and from the way Jesus treated him, Judas was one of the closest disciples to Rabbi Jesus. And his betrayal was probably one of the least to be expected. But you know the key passage, and the one that even I, I marvel that the Jews, even today, continue to miss the fulfillment of this passage is Isaiah 53. And I want to read from that passage. I cannot, cannot believe that this passage was not on the mind of our Lord in Gethsemane and in his mind when he said that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Starting in verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? There's the scripture. cannot be redemption without payment. You cannot redeem something without payment. The idea that God, the God of Israel, would simply restore the fortunes of his people without any payment made for their sin is not biblical. That the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom of God without God whose just wrath has placed all men under condemnation, without God being satisfied, the stroke that was due us fell on him. 
that the scriptures be fulfilled. That God be satisfied, his justice be met, his mercy be opened. All the scriptures must be fulfilled. Those that speak of his suffering, then those that speak of his triumph. But we're on the other side. I think it's fair for us to consider what Peter, John, James, the other Jews, even the high priest, even Herod, might have been thinking at that time. Because they were on the other side of the cross. They were looking for the end of the age that meant the coming of the Messiah. Some were looking to it faithfully, like Simeon and Anna. Others, like Herod, looking to it jealously. But they were still looking because the prophecies were there and the people believed that the scriptures do not lie. But we're on this side. We look back on that fulfillment, but we look ahead to his second coming. And I think we make the same mistakes. We believe that all scripture will be fulfilled. Those men that I mentioned earlier, as they attempted to figure out just when things would happen, many of them were not trying to bring glory to themselves. Many of them were honestly trying to deal with scripture and their belief and their their trust in scripture led them to the conclusion, these things will come to pass and I can figure out when. Well, that's where they made their mistake. We get a magazine here at the church that's called Zion's Fire. It comes every month. You never see it on the back table because I have a special file for it. <laughs> and that's where it goes. Not because I do not believe that the men who edit that magazine are not believers. What I know of them, they are very sincere believers. But because I do not believe in what they're trying to do. The emails, the ones you know that that you'll forward if you love Jesus. Well, if that's the criteria, then I don't love Jesus. I guess I keep missing the forward button and I hit the delete button. It's just too close. Because it's not that the people don't love the Lord. It's not that the people don't love the scripture. It's they're trying to do what we can't do. They're trying to predict and to read current events and say that this is in fulfillment of scripture. But do we remember what Jesus taught us? That there will be wars and rumors of wars and there will be earthquakes and there will be floods and these are not the signs of the end? So why do we keep looking at them? Because we're just a curious people. Jesus said that the scriptures cannot lie and that the scriptures would be fulfilled. That is sufficient. The prophecies of the suffering servant were fulfilled. The prophecies of the triumphant king were fulfilled. The prophecies of the consummation of the age and Jesus' return will be fulfilled. I'm just skeptical that anyone down here will quite figure out how or when. Let us pray. Father, we do trust your word. 
For we know that your word is faithful and true, that your word is established in the heavens. We know, Father, that you do not reveal what you are doing, or you not do what you will do without revealing it to your prophets. But, Father, we acknowledge that oftentimes we only see these things in hindsight. We recognize the fulfillment after it has come. And we do recognize that you have fulfilled the fullness of your prophecies concerning the coming Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. So, Father, as we look forward to his coming, may we not doubt the truth of the prophecies that speak of his return. For we know that that day will come when he will gather along with his angels, all of his saints, and the consummation of the ages and the revelation of the kingdom of God will be manifest. But we do not know when. The times and the seasons you have set by your own wisdom, and you have not revealed them to man. And so I pray that we might not pry into things that are beyond us, but rather stand firm on those things that we know. You are God. You are sovereign over all time and all space, and you are our Father. We ask, Father, that you would bless the communion of your people around the table, that it would be sweet, that we would fellowship in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, one with another, for he is our hope and our salvation. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. I'd like to ask Josh and Bob if you would help with the elements this morning. As they are passing the bread, I also want to remind that we do observe a split tray. So when the drink comes around, the outer ring of the tray is wine and the inner rings are grape juice. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same manner, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this sacrament. And we ask that you might transport our spirits to where our Lord Jesus is at your right hand, that we might in the spirit partake of his body, which is true bread, and his blood, which is true wine, that we might commune with the one who took upon himself sin, that we might take upon ourselves, by your grace, the righteousness of God in him. Father, may we see ourselves clothed in his righteousness and not our own, and may these emblems represent the new life that he has given to each of us who believe on his name. By your grace and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me this morning for the benediction from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, sir. You're